Heavenly Father, we are thankful, Lord, for all that you do in fulfillment of your word. Not just the big things, Father, for certainly those are important. And we find encouragement in seeing how you have such command of all circumstances. But, Father, perhaps especially so, we are comforted in seeing your sovereignty even in the little things of life. The faithfulness to your promises that we would never be left aside, forsaken, and forgotten. Or that we would never have the provision we need. Or that we would never uh, lack, Father, for the counsel of your word. Even just in the very reality, Father, that nothing in this life uh, can touch us. That there is nothing, Father, that you have not brought under your authority. And that our faith in Christ cannot conquer. And it is such an assurance, Father, in a day and in an age in which so much seems to be going in the wrong way, whether that's in our personal life or whether in the world around us, so many days, Father, seem to be troubled. And here again, Father, we can take your word to the bank and find our faithfulness in it as you tell us that the last days we would find tribulation, we would find troubles. But those things, Father, are merely indication that we do come to a glorious future one day sooner. And uh, let us focus on that. As we study what you revealed to this man and to his people long ago, you spoke a bit to us uh, about our day even now. So encourage us in that. Show us how you have authored history and are bringing it to a proper glorious conclusion. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of you all were here last week for our study of Tyre, that strange and fascinating story of what God would do to judge Tyre, both the city and the king, and the mysterious character behind the scenes, who we discovered to be Satan. If that's not something you were here for and you're now suddenly intrigued, well, I have good news for you. We have a recording you can go listen to. But meanwhile, uh, we're moving on. The city-state of Tyre was just one of the historical enemies that God is judging. It was one of seven that Ezekiel includes in this section of the book. And if you're keeping count, we've looked at Ammon, Moab, Edom, Philistia, Tyre. We finished last week along with Sidon, which was a very quick mention at the end of chapter 28. And after we conclude all of these prophecies of the enemies of Israel, we're about to jump into the second half of this book, which begins in chapter 33. We're going to enter a new section of prophecy uh, that looks at the kingdom to come, and it's probably the hook that's kept you all here this long. Because, you know, it's not a surprise to say that the first half of this book can be a bit of a chore for some people, because it's similar in theme. It tends to reiterate a lot of the same ideas. It's on the focus of judgment, first Israel and now on her enemies. And after a while, we all would love to move beyond that. And the good news is we're about to. And when we get there and when we tackle the the prophecies on the kingdom, it's going to be a bit of a challenge. There's some very interesting stuff in there and stuff that still causes some controversy, I guess, today. So we'll deal with it as we get there. But before we get there, we have the matter of one more of Israel's enemies that we have to address. One more, the last one, the seventh, Egypt. And Ezekiel's prophecies against Egypt are divided into seven distinct messages. In fact, the the seven messages that are spoken against Egypt are equal in length to all six of the prophecies for all six of the prior enemies combined. And that reflects Egypt's importance, their unique position in the history of Israel and really in the world. And we're going to look at their influence throughout the messages, but you already know a part of it just from what we've studied already in this book. And that is specifically Egypt's role in introducing idolatry into the nation of Israel. You may remember, Egypt didn't just corrupt Israel from the outside. 
It started when Israel was inside the land. You remember earlier we learned that when Israel went into the land under Jacob and lived there at Joseph's invitation, before they became slaves to Pharaoh, Ezekiel revealed to us that they had already begun to engage in the idolatry of Egypt. They had already started to take on the idols, which is why they were put in slavery by God, so that they could not exercise that pagan desire any more than, they, than, than necessary. They were kind of being held captive by God in protective custody, if you will. And yet, when they left the land, we learned that as they exited and they went through the Exodus story, you remember how quickly they turned against God. And you may have always wondered, if you never learned about this piece of it, why Israel was so quick to walk away from God after having seen all the judgments and so on. Well, Ezekiel told us it's because they carried that idolatry out with them. It never left their heart. They brought it into the desert, and then they brought, that generation died. And that saved them for a time. The new generation that walked in under Joshua didn't bring it back quite as quickly. But eventually it reemerged. And the story since then for Israel has been nothing but this cycle of returning to idolatry through one influence or another and finding that then to be cause for judgment. And then God reacts and then they may come back for a time. And that back and forth cycle has gone on for a while. But it's reached the point, as you know from earlier in this book, where God is now forced to act in a major way. And if you trace that pattern back to its origins, you find Egypt. And along the way, you find Egypt at times, just continuing in their behavior. Egypt was the beginning of that curse, and it was because of their idolatry that Israel is now being sent out of their land in exile, and it's also why the city is about to be destroyed, and the walls knocked down, and the temple destroyed. Idolatry, that's the source of all this, remember? That if they engaged in idolatry, he would visit the sins of the fathers unto the sons for the third and fourth generations. That's a promise to bring Israel into exile if they engaged in idolatry. Here you have it. So in the case of Egypt, the judgments reflect their preeminent importance in corrupting Israel into into idolatry. And this section of prophecy that we're now going to get into, these seven messages against uh, Egypt, is perhaps some of the most difficult to interpret in the whole Bible. Uh, Well, let's just just say at least in Ezekiel. And therefore, it's a source of some division among scholars who try to figure out what this stuff means. So some of the scholars you'll read will say that all of what we're going to study about Egypt has already been fulfilled, and others will see at least some of it as still future state. And then adding to the confusion is the fact that some of these prophecies are out of order chronologically in the way that Ezekiel has put them in the book. Remember, Ezekiel's known particularly for dating his prophecies with such great accuracy And so as we look at the dates on some of these seven messages to Egypt, you're going to notice that he's jumping around. So if it wasn't hard enough already, he decided to make it a little more challenging for us. So let's begin with the first of these. It runs from Ezekiel 29.1 down through most of the chapter. We're going to take it in a couple of pieces here. So let's look at verse 1 through 7. In the tenth year, in the tenth month, on the twelfth of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy against him and against all Egypt. Speak and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great monster that lies in the midst of his rivers, that has said, My Nile is mine, and I myself have made it. I will put hooks in your jaws and make the fish of your rivers cling to your scales, and I will bring you up out of the midst of your rivers, and all the fish of your rivers will cling to your scales. I will abandon you to the wilderness, you and all the fish of your rivers. You will fall in the open field. You will not be brought together or gathered. I have given you for food to the beasts of the earth and to the birds of the sky. Then all the inhabitants of Egypt will know that I am the Lord, because they have been only a staff made of reed to the house of Israel. 
When they took hold of you with the hand, you broke and tore all their hands. And when they leaned on you, you broke and made all their loins quake. Alright, so we'll start with the date at the top here. It says based on the date he gives that this oracle came in the year before the year that we got the oracle on Tyre. So I'm just giving you the math. If you go do it for yourself, you can see. But if you went back to the start of where we looked at Tyre and looked at that date, you find this date to be one year earlier. So here we are with a prophecy concerning Egypt that actually was given to Ezekiel a year earlier than the one he gave to Tyre, but he didn't write it in the book until after the one he got from Tyre. All right? And the date on our modern calendar here would be January 7th, 587 B.C., And that date is important because of how it relates to the historical events that are taking place at this time. During the time Ezekiel received these prophecies about Israel's enemies, the whole period of his prophecy about enemies, all seven of the enemies, during that period of time, what's going on? you remember? We've come out of a period of judgment for Israel in which God says to Ezekiel, tell him I'm going to destroy the city a third time. Tell him it's coming. Tell him the die is cast. And then as the siege takes hold and Nebuchadnezzar reaches the city for that third time, it's a period of waiting because there's three years of siege before he finally conquers the city. It's in those three years, while the city's under siege, but yet while we're still waiting for the full uh, events of that prophecy to play out, that everybody's sort of just cooling their heels in Babylon. And in that time, God gives Ezekiel prophecies concerning the enemies of Israel. Once the city has been destroyed and the exiles have been brought up into Babylon to join the rest... Then the prophecies turn toward the kingdom. So we're in that interim period, right? As I said, the siege will last three years, but even then it goes through some stages. At about 588 B.C., Egypt will come into the picture. Egypt comes to Israel's aid, or at least tries to, against Nebuchadnezzar's army, and for a time they break the siege that's against Jerusalem. The Egyptians historically have always had a rivalry with the powers of Mesopotamia. The powers of Mesopotamia stand north of Egypt, and in between is the Promised Land. And so you often found the Promised Land to be the fighting grounds between two larger enemies. And that was certainly true then. It continued on during the Greek Empire, and even to some extent today. Egypt in that day had a rivalry with Babylon. And so they saw an opportunity as Babylon had come down and sieged Israel. They saw an opportunity. They thought if they allied with Israel against Babylon, they may have enough strength to repel Babylon. And if they did so, of course, then Egypt would own that land and Israel would be their vassal. And that would enhance their power. So when Babylon came to siege Jerusalem, Pharaoh came up and engaged. But it didn't take very long. After about uh, less than a year of fighting in that three-year period, The Babylonians had reestablished control. They kicked the Egyptians back down to their their land, and they pursued the siege of Jerusalem. So by 587 B.C., Ezekiel, who's now writing this, is receiving this prophecy now concerning Egypt. So here are the dates again. 588 B.C., Egypt has come against Babylon and tried to stop the siege. 587 B.C., one year later, they failed, and that's the year Ezekiel gets this prophecy about Egypt. Okay? So, now you might think at this point, well, God would probably be thinking, eh, at least a little bit positively about Egypt. I mean, after all, they did try to defend Israel. Except that they were defending Israel against the Babylonians who God sent to judge Israel. Babylon was the instrument of judgment that God appointed for his people. So what's ironic here is, 
Egypt made themselves an enemy of God by defending Jerusalem against the Babylonian invasion. Therefore, at the same time that Babylon was repelling Egypt, the Lord is speaking through their prophet, telling them that he's going to judge Egypt for trying to get into the middle of this. Never mind all their history. So in verse 2, it says this prophecy is against the leader of the nation, but notice it's also against the people of Egypt. So the punishments that God is pronouncing here are against the entire nation, not just the leadership. And that detail is going to be important, among others, because it begins to help us form an opinion about what time in history this prophecy will be fulfilled. We know what time in history it was given, but what events is it talking about? When will the events of the prophecy happen? Verse 3, the Lord promises, he says, I'm going to set myself against Pharaoh. He says, Pharaoh's a a monster who lies in the, the midst of the rivers. The Hebrew word there for monster is actually the ancient word for serpent. So this is the Lord in a, in a not-so-subtle way calling Pharaoh an instrument of Satan. He's a serpent, if you will. This is very similar to what we just got through studying in Tyre, right? We had the whole juxtapositioning of the prince of Tyre and the king of Tyre, the man on the ground and the prince of the air, if you will, Satan, behind the scenes. And so you see that same kind of unholy union implied even at the outset of this one, where you see Satan implied to be behind the scenes, working through the king, the pharaoh, who's compared to a serpent, manifesting his work in the heart of that man, creating in him pride, creating in him this sense of of self-sustaining power. Notice in verse 3, Pharaoh is saying to himself that he made the Nile. Okay, well, how would he come to that conclusion, right? How does anybody tell themselves that? Well, Egyptians had a lot of gods, pagan gods, one of which was the Nile. The Nile was considered a god. And Pharaoh himself claimed to be a god, actually God incarnate, who then would have created the Nile. So that's where that line of thought comes out of. So because of his prideful arrogance against Israel, the Lord says in verse 4, I'm going to put the pharaohs, not just one here, but I'm going to put the pharaohs out of Egypt like fish out of water. They're going to be pulled out by hooks. And that's an allusion to the way they fished, actually. They used to pull crocodiles out of the Nile that way and then kill them on the shore. The Lord explains in verse 5 that this means that the king and all his people would be abandoned in the wilderness, the king, the people, they'd all be an open field and they'd be like food for birds. And then finally, in verses 6 and 7, he gives the charge against the nation. Here's what they did wrong. He says they were like a walking staff for Israel made out of a Nile reed. It's a beautiful little metaphor, beautiful little picture. Walking staffs to us don't mean a lot. You know, it's like it's what the old guy in the neighborhood uses when he walks his poodle. No self-reference intended. Um, but in that day, you know, paved land was not easy to find. Most of the ground was, was natural and rocky. And if the ground was in a particularly rocky area, you know, not having something to lean against, not something, having something to, to hold yourself up with was dangerous. I mean, you could trip, fall, fall over a cliff. So a staff was an important uh, instrument for safety. And if your staff was strong, it was, it was a great benefit. If it was not strong, it wasn't just that it was useless. It was a serious liability because... A staff that broke at the wrong moment is going to leave you in a really bad situation. In the text, it talks about their hands being scraped up or their loins quaking. But, I mean, the idea here is that it's the worst thing in the world to have something you can't depend on. And that was the picture the Lord uses to describe Israel's relationship with with Egypt. Egypt is a staff, as it were, to Israel in difficult times historically, but it was one they could never depend on. When famine hit Israel, back in Genesis, you see multiple instances in which you know, the, the patriarchs would go down because of famine into Egypt. That continued on as, you know, Ruth and, his, and her family um, fled out of uh, Israel to a different area, but the idea is the same. They always go somewhere where there's food, and Egypt always had food. And then when um, 
Uh, Nebuchadnezzar attacks Jerusalem. The nation looked for Egypt again to help them militarily in that alliance. But every time, it's like a staff made from a thin Nile reed. You know, it looks at first like it can support weight, but as soon as you try, it fails. And as a result, pictorially, Israel stumbles. But in this case, of course, the stumble here is that they are stumbled by the idolatry of the land, by the influence of Egypt. You know, be careful who you get in bed with. That's the idea. And that, that, that's what Israel has done time and again with Egypt. So Israel leaned on them when they shouldn't have, and in the end, they caused Israel to stumble. And so the Lord says he's going to judge them. And this is where we get into the, the heart of the judgment in the first message. Verse 8, he says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will bring upon you a sword, and I will cut off from you man and beast. The land of Egypt will become a desolation and a waste. Then they will know that I am the Lord, because you said, The Nile is mine, and I have made it. Therefore, behold, I am against you and against your rivers, and I will make the land of Egypt an utter waste and desolation, from Migdal to Syene and even to the border of Ethiopia. A man's foot will not pass through it, and the foot of a beast will not pass through it, and it will not be inhabited for forty years. So I will make the land of Egypt a desolation in the midst of desolated lands. And in her cities, in the midst of cities that are laid waste, will be desolate forty years. And I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them among the lands. For thus says the Lord God, At the end of forty years I will gather the Egyptians from the peoples among whom they are scattered. I will turn the fortunes of Egypt and make them return to the land of Pathros, to the land of their origin, and there they will be a lowly kingdom. It will be the lowest of the kingdoms. And it will never again lift itself up above the nations. And I will make them so small that they will not rule over the nations. And it will never again be the confidence of the house of Israel, bringing to mind the iniquity of their having turned to Egypt. Then they will know that I am the Lord God. All right, that's the judgment God promises to bring against the nation. So let's take note of some of the details, a lot of the details in that list, as we try to identify the time and the nature of the fulfillment of this judgment. When do we think this is going to happen? First, the Lord said he's going to bring against Pharaoh a sword. And with that sword, he's going to cut off man and beast. Now, in fact, he says the land's going to become so desolate and such a waste place because of the pride of the nation and the king that from Migdal to Syene to Ethiopia, there will be desolation. Now, those are markers for us. And if you look at a map, ancient map, those are the names of cities that define the borders of Egypt. So you had uh, Migdal in the north, Syene in the south, and you had Ethiopia in the extreme west. So it's basically from border to border. No one's going to be there. And the point is, the entire length of the nation is absent. Both people, and you notice, also animals. In fact, neither, it says, a human foot nor a foot of a beast will even pass through it. We're not even just talking about residents. We're saying nobody even travels from one side to the other just to move through the land. Maybe they had a wall, but they had something that was working well enough to keep people from even getting in. Just completely nothing. And if you think about this historically now, you think, well, okay, there's got to be somewhere in history that we have this this event, because it's so dramatic. Uh, well, we don't find it. There's nothing in history that would coincide with this kind of an event, which then forces us to look to future events, because where else do you go? Now, having said that, there are commentaries. This is where I said earlier, it's kind of interesting to me why there's a lot of disagreement, because you'll find commentaries in which this entire set of events are explained in terms of historical events in which Egypt was attacked or so by Babylon or by others. But the only way I think you get to that conclusion, given what we read, is if you overlook 
a lot of the little details that are in this text that we can come back now and look at. Or, or I guess you just assume that the Lord's exaggerating or something. But otherwise, I don't know how you reconcile it with the actual historical events. And I would go a step further. I think the context here never indicates to us that we're supposed to interpret what we just read as anything other than a literal description. You know, you have, for example, you have geographical markers. You know, geographical markers usually, if not always, indicate we're looking at something literal, right? You have a literal description of devastation and abandonment. You have descriptions of the absence of animals. These are not metaphors. These have very literal meaning in the text. And you even have a timetable for this destruction, 40 years. And the Lord says in verse 11, this is the period of abandonment, 40 years. And it will be both unoccupied by man or beast for that length of time. And in verse 12, he adds that the citizens of the nation will actually be dispersed among other nations during that time period. This degree of specificity in the text strongly indicates that this is a description of literal events. It precludes spiritualizing it and making it metaphoric or assuming it's exaggeration. It's too specific. Scripture never works like that. And so it compels us to look at this literally, which then compels us to look at it as future state, because we don't have a past experience that matches these events. All right, so that leaves us with only one conclusion. This is a period in the coming kingdom, or something associated with the coming kingdom. Now, we've already seen in this uh, section on the enemies of Israel, we've already seen in some of the other enemies' cases, prophecies from Ezekiel concerning what God is going to do to them that we know were references to future destruction in the kingdom. We saw that in earlier cases, and it was clear in the text. And that tells us that this is not an unprecedented conclusion that I'm making. It's not unprecedented to assume that there is some mixture of judgment both now in Ezekiel's day as well as some yet to come in the kingdom. And we see that appearing here again in in the case of Egypt. And if so, then, we would want to find further confirmation in the text that we're looking at the kingdom. And here's some of the things we see. It says in verse 13, he says, After the 40 years, he's going to gather the Egyptians back to their land. Now, that's a strikingly similar statement to what the Lord says about his own plans for Israel, right? Scattering and regathering. Israel scattered outside their land for a time and then allowed to return. So here's another way to look at the interpretive model. If you conclude that when God promises to scatter and regather Israel, that we are to take those promises literally, then you have no hermeneutic basis to do otherwise here that the same language being used would be interpreted in the same fashion, which is to suggest this is a literal prophecy. Here again, that's never happened in history. So it must be just something in the future, that Egypt will be scattered and regathered. There'll be a 40-year period in which the land is unoccupied. When they return, the Lord says in verse 14, they'll come back to their land of origins. Pathros is the southern half of Egypt near Thebes. And then from this return, the new Egyptian nation will never again be mighty. In fact, he says they will be the least mighty nation on earth. Here again, no historical precedent for that. I mean, even even the Egypt of today is more powerful than the least powerful nation on earth. So they will be a lowly nation. They will never rule over another nation. And more importantly, most importantly, they will never be an attractive supporter to Israel again. Israel will never look to them as if they can gain something by that association. In fact, the Lord says they will serve to remind Israel of their past mistakes in that regard. How did we ever trust these people? All right? The effect on that judgment will be that the people of Egypt, notice this, the people of Egypt, will come to recognize that the Lord is the only one. Here again, we have yet to see Egypt declaring that Yahweh is the Lord, right? So that will be a remarkable outcome, when and if, not if, but when it happens, right? 
Because Egypt's never been anything other than a pagan nation. The latest incarnation of their pagan religion is Islam, basically. But the point is still the same. So once again, we're forced to look to the future. And now do we decode this a little bit. Remember in verse 8, we looked at how this judgment begins, and it starts with a sword. Now, in a more historical interpretation, that would be uh, usually a reference to a battle, to an army. But knowing that this is a future-looking interpretation, based on the other details we've looked at, we have more liberty. What else could it mean? Perhaps it's an army, but is there any other reference in Scripture that might fit the pattern here that starts with a sword? And, And you find one at the second coming of Christ. In Revelation 19.11, it says, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, most of you probably heard that passage. Certainly, if you, even if you hadn't, you know who we're talking about. It's pretty clear. Lord of Lords, King of Kings. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword. Now, there's some symbology in that, but that same symbology is easily seen to be at play here in Ezekiel. That is, the sword of Christ is the word of God, the word of his power, by which he destroys his enemies. You know, he doesn't have to punch them out. He can just say a word, and they're gone. But he still does that. And in the timing of his return, we know from elsewhere in Scripture that he is, at that moment, destroying a force led by a man who is called the Antichrist. At the end of a seven-year period, we call tribulation. And under the Antichrist rule, you find all the nations of the earth that remain, including Egypt. And as that battle, short as it is, happens, the sword of God wiping out the nations, it's interesting, you read something that immediately follows. In verse 5 of Ezekiel, you notice it said that one of the outcomes of the judgment against Egypt would be that the bodies would just be laying everywhere, eaten by birds. And in Revelation 19, you hear this. Verse 17, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven, mid-heaven is a reference to the atmosphere, to the air, all birds, come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, and the flesh of commanders, and the flesh of mighty men, and the flesh of horses, and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves, all small and great. And I saw the beast, and the kings of the earth, and their armies assemble to make war with him who sat on the horse and against his army. And it goes from there. So, These are small details, but they start to line up, and that gives us somewhere to follow for a while and see if what we're observing makes sense. Um, The end of Revelation 19 says that the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. It's a very direct comparison of what we see said about Egypt, and it's particularly compelling in light of the fact that we've never seen this stuff happen in Egypt before. So we've got to find somewhere in the future for it to happen, and this seems a very likely uh, place to hang our hat for at least the moment. Furthermore, at the end of the battle, the nation, we're told, will experience a period of 40 years without any inhabitants. Now, that would mean that for 40 years, out of what must be then the thousand-year kingdom, the nation of Egypt exists in the kingdom, but no one's in it. 
And then after 40 years, the Lord allows the nation to be repopulated by those who are in the kingdom and, I guess, have been appointed to live in Egypt. But then, as a result, what Egypt looks like in the kingdom age is a very weak nation. Nothing of the power that we've seen before. So, in that way, they stand as a testimony during that age concerning their responsibility for corrupting Egypt. And they're right next to Israel. And so Israel gets to look over their borders at that weak nation and say, why did we ever think they could help us? And that will be the testimony of the Millennial Kingdom. Now, assuming uh, my interpretation is correct, uh, and there's none other in the room right now, so what else are you going to do? Then that would mean that Ezekiel has started this section on Egypt with a prophecy that looks far into the future, not only from our day, of course, but from their day. So from there, where does he go? Well, he moves to a prophecy about events that were soon to happen in their day. Verse 17. Now in the 27th year, in the first month, on the first of the month, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made his army labor hard against Tyre. Every head was made bald, every shoulder was rubbed bare. But he and his army had no wages from Tyre for their labor that he had performed against it. And therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will give the land of Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he will carry off her wealth and capture her spoil and seize her plunder, and it will be wages for his army. I have given him the land of Egypt for his labor, which he performed, because they acted for me, declares the Lord God. On that day I will make a horn sprout for the house of Israel, and I will open your mouth in their midst. Then they will know that I am the Lord. All right, the dating of this one. In our calendar, April 26th, 571 B.C., but it's New Year's, basically, in the Jewish calendar, which means this prophecy, this is, again, if you're not taking notes, it'll probably just be hard to follow, but you can go look at these later. But this came 17 years after the one we just studied. So the one we just studied came one year before Tyre. This one came 17 years after that. Now, by the order of the seven messages concerning Egypt, we, we are now on message number two of seven, because it's the second one, obviously. But based on dates of the seven, this is the sixth of the seventh. I lost anybody. So of the seven he gets, this is the sixth one he got from God. But when he wrote the book, he put it number two. Okay? So why does Ezekiel move this prophecy up earlier in his, his narrative? Well, the message concerns events that I think are intended to balance what we just learned in the first message. The earlier prophecy was about an ultimate judgment, right? The ultimate judgment of the nation and the kingdom. That judgment isn't going to happen for a while. So in the meantime, the Lord shows his people, there's going to be more. There's going to be other judgments. And these near-term judgments come to pass in Ezekiel's day, in his lifetime. And that gives the nation of Israel confidence to trust what he says, not only about those near-term events, because they see them come to pass, but now as well about the long-term events. You know, if the guy says he knows what's going to happen tomorrow when it comes to pass, when he tells you what's going to happen next year, you probably believe that too. And that's the idea. And there's more to it, which we're going to look at here in a minute, but that's a starting point. So Ezekiel reveals now in this second message how um, Nebuchadnezzar is going to be given Egypt as spoil. God's kind of giving it to him as a gift. Notice, though, that it starts here with a story about the battle against Tyre. All right, so Nebuchadnezzar, we know, besieged and destroyed Jerusalem. took him three years to do it. Uh, In between, you had a little skirmish with Egypt. Finally, he gets through, he breaks the city down, he gets gets what he wants, he just raises it to the ground. All right. Now what's he going to do? Well, they head north. 
and they see Tyre, and Tyre looks like an attractive alternative for going home, so he sieges Tyre. And I remember when we studied Tyre, how long did they siege Tyre before they got through the walls around that island fortress? 13 years. So they siege Tyre for 13 more years, waiting to get through the walls of Tyre, remember? And then, as they siege Tyre for 13 years, Ezekiel is writing this prophecy based on the date now. If you do the math, then I'm doing it for you. He's writing this prophecy right about the year that Tyre fell. Okay? And as we learned before, Tyre's fall was an earth-shattering event, historically, for the people in the ancient world. So the captives in Babylon, Israel, who's now captive in Babylon, this is news for them, right? It's news for everybody. Did you hear Tyre fell to Babylon? Can you believe Tyre is gone? And when that happened, they would have had Ezekiel's prophecy on their mind as well because it was coming in the same period of time, and that was intentional. God wanted them to understand that what Ezekiel was saying to them they could trust, but then, if you will kind of like a football game, Ezekiel is giving color commentary on what's happening. He's explaining the meaning of it, even as the news of it is coming into the camp. So the Lord speaks to Ezekiel, to the exiles, and he says, because Nebuchadnezzar succeeded in all that I gave him to do, I need to pay him. And notice in verse 18, it says that he went against Tyre, and it was hard work. We know it's 13 years, but I love the phrases there. Every head was bald. That's a way of saying he made his army work so hard for so long that... After wearing a helmet for so many years, they had no hair left. And after their shoulders had been rubbed raw by their coats of armor. This is just a sign of how long the siege was, how hard the army was worked. And then even worse, it says they didn't get any pay for it. Now, to understand that, you have to understand how ancient armies made a living. They didn't get a paycheck, generally speaking. The incentive for someone to be in the army was the booty that they collected from the vanquished. So if you consider this army has fought for 13 years at Tyre and it says they didn't get much booty when they left that city, you have to wonder, well, where did it all go? It was a rich city. Well, much of the city's wealth probably was consumed by the citizens over that 13-year period. And any of the non-perishable, if you will, any of the, the precious metals and the like, were also expent because there is historical evidence that during the siege, Tyre and Egypt were allies. Here's Egypt again, getting in the middle trying to do something to counteract Babylon's power. So they allied with Tyre, and in some fashion, Tyre must have been able to smuggle out pay to the Egyptian army in some fashion, you know, little boats at night or something. And as a result, they were able to fund Egypt for support and supplies and sustain a 13-year siege. But in the meantime, they ran out of money. So after 13 years, what do you got? You got an unhappy, tired, bald army, that, that wants money and doesn't have any. So the Lord says, I owe them money because I asked him to do this work. It's interesting how the Lord really takes ownership over this, isn't it, right? He says, I, I called him into this work, so I need to pay him. And he says, I happen to know the perfect bank. It's called Egypt. I'm going to tell him to go to Egypt and take Egypt. And of course, you might ask, well, how does he know they're going to take Egypt? Because he's going to give it to them. The whole point is he's going to ensure their success in the battle. So in verse 19, the Lord says, I've given Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar so he can carry off their wealth. And that only makes sense if you think about it, because where did the wealth of Tyre end up? A good portion of it ended up in Egypt, as far as we can tell. And again, you have Egypt trying to thwart the will of God by opposing Nebuchadnezzar. And so that just gave God even more justification to to take them down, right? So the Lord's justice is going to prevail. Nebuchadnezzar, we know historically, Nebuchadnezzar invaded Egypt in about 568 B.C., which is in uh, sync with these timelines, by the way. As he did, the Lord says in verse 21, 
that Israel begins to grow a horn, so to speak. This is a turn of phrase. A horn in ancient scripture, ancient texts, and in scripture is a depiction of strength, of power. And the idea here is that Israel's future immediately became stronger as Egypt was weakened. It's like one gets stronger at the expense of the other. Now, this is a third time in Scripture, if you count, that you can see an example of this kind of judgment against Egypt. And if you think about it for a second, knowing any history, about, like the book of Genesis, for example, you can see the pattern here. Remember when Abraham and Sarah went into Egypt? When they came out, they brought a lot of possessions with them from Egypt, right? Egypt funded Abraham's success, if you will. You remember when Israel left Egypt in the Exodus? They robbed the nation. They took all the, the value they could carry, and it became ultimately what funded the building of the tabernacle and all the implements, among other things, right? And now you see the Lord taking spoil from Egypt once again to give Israel strength in comparison. And now as you leave chapter 29, I told you that this section of Ezekiel's prophecies can get hard to interpret. Well, we haven't hit the hard part yet. We'll continue now into what's considered the third message of the seven. But it gets a little confusing. Let's just drive in. Verse 1, chapter 30. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy and say, Thus says the Lord God, Wail, alas, for the day. For the day is near. Even the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. A sword will come upon Egypt, and anguish will be in Ethiopia. When the slain fall in Egypt, they take away her wealth, and her foundations are torn down. Ethiopia, Put, Lud, and all Arabia, Libya, and the people of the land that is in league will fall with them by the sword. Thus says the Lord, indeed, those who support Egypt will fall, and the pride of her power will come down from Migdal to Syene. They will fall within her by the sword, declares the Lord God. They will be desolate in the midst of the desolated lands, and her cities will be in the midst of the devastated cities. And they will know that I am the Lord when I set a fire in Egypt and all her helpers are broken. On that day... Messengers will go forth from me in ships to frighten, secure Ethiopia. And anguish will be on them as on the day of Egypt. For behold, it comes. All right, now the first thing you notice about this is this is an undated prophecy. Compared to what we've been saying, that's an exception. So that makes it a little hard to place among the seven messages that we have to deal with here. I mean, it comes third in the sequence of the book. But is it a later prophecy that's been moved up? Kind of like number two was. Is it in sequence with the first one? You know, we're kind of stuck now, all right? You look at the content, though, and it seems to join up really well with the first message, doesn't it? Because it seems to be evidently looking at the end times again. You have that phrase, particularly, the day of the Lord. That's a key marker. Uh, That phrase generally means the seven-year period of tribulation on earth. And if, if you learn nothing else tonight, that might be the most important thing you learn if you're a student of prophecy. Anytime you see the phrase, day of the Lord... Almost without exception, if I know, I can't even think of an exception at this point. It's a reference not to the return of Christ, not to some other singular day event. It's a reference to the entire seven years of tribulation. And there's context to show you that in elsewhere. We're not going to do that tonight, but you can hopefully take my word for it. But the reason that's so important is there are things that are spoken, particularly in the New Testament, about the day of the Lord that people get wrong because they don't understand that that phrase refers to seven years, not to a single day. And so they start attributing events too early or too late in sequences. Anyway... With that marker here, it's an indication that we're looking at something that's taking place in the future, in the seven-year tribulation. And then secondly, notice the opening descriptions of this particular judgment. It's a day of gloom and doom. And notice also, not just for one nation, but for all nations. Did you catch that? So this includes, he specifically names some. These are the immediate neighbors of Egypt. 
But, you know, it's speaking in general terms here about nations, but he includes the Ethiopia, Put, uh, Lud, and, and Libya. Those are the neighbors. And they're all likewise being destroyed in this doom. And that's probably because many of those surrounding nations were really vassals of Egypt, and they ended up contributing soldiers into the army. So, in some sense, it's like destroying the Eastern Bloc countries as opposed to just destroying the Soviet Union. You know, they kind of all were similarly aligned. And again, you notice that they're all going to be left desolate. So what I'm getting at here is it would seem as though this third message is also a prophecy of future distant events, speaking of a similar time. But you notice it's shifted a little in time. The first one was dealing specifically, as I looked at it anyway, with the second coming of Christ. The sword coming from the mouth of God, if you will. And we knew that because it inaugurated a 40-year period in which no one was in the land. And that has no reference to contemporary history or, or historical events whatsoever. This, though, doesn't mention the 40 years. This prophecy, though, mentions other countries being destroyed along with Egypt. That's a new piece. And it talks about the day of the Lord. That's a specific phrase that is prior to Christ's second coming. The tribulation is before Christ's second coming. And so that would seem to separate these two just a little bit in time. Whereas the first one was clearly at what I would argue is the second coming of Christ. This one seems to be in events that lead up to the second coming of Christ, particularly the devastation that's taking place during tribulation itself. So in verse 9, we see references to things like ships being sent by the Lord, so mighty that they frighten even secure Ethiopia. And that's kind of an obscure reference. And that's one of the things that some people point to to say, oh, this must be talking about historical events, can't be talking about future events. But if you go that direction, too much of the rest of this prophecy doesn't fit. So I look at that as a part of the activity that must be going on in the time of tribulation. Now, at this point, I'm getting kind of vague, right? You're kind of wondering, well, how do you know what the truth is here, Steve? Well, let's, let's back up. What I like to do at a point in Scripture, when I get to a, a, a place like this, where I'm not sure if the details are fitting, I always use the analogy of a, of a jigsaw puzzle. I find that to be a really useful way of looking at how we work out Scripture, in, at least at a, in some degree. And, you know, if you're working with, with a jigsaw puzzle, there's a couple of important elements to the process. Uh, first, there's the knowledge that a piece only fits in one place. There's no way that two pieces are identical if they're done right. And if you're trying to fit a piece in and you think it fits, and it kind of works, but it takes a little extra pressure and then it kind of just doesn't quite match, you know, you, there's a part of you that wants it to stay there, and there's another part of you that's telling yourself, that's not it. And in Scripture, you'll find that a lot. Like tonight, you might look at the text and say, it's kind of fitting, but it, it almost feels like the, the piece wants to pop out, Steve. It doesn't quite, and that might be a sign that we're on the wrong track. It's not clear. What's the other important element you have in, in working a jigsaw puzzle that you need? The box. <laughs> that picture, right? You need the big picture. I've been told they sell jigsaw puzzles where there's no picture. The box is just blank. That's people who just are gluttons for punishment, isn't it? They don't want to have fun. In this case, what's the analogy for Scripture? Then the analogy for Scripture is, let's, let's step back. There's obviously a pattern going on here, it seems to be. What, what, why the jumping around? Why the, the near-term, far-term kind of views intermixed? Can we find something in a pattern that would help drive our understanding to solidify some of these conclusions that I'm making? That's the way I like to look at Scripture. If I'm confused on the details, I look at the 30,000-foot level. And based on my interpretation so far, a pattern does start to emerge. Ezekiel's first message was about a distant destruction at Christ's second coming. Then you had a prophecy about a near-term destruction at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. And if you compare those two, clearly the destruction of Christ's return is greater than the destruction that Nebuchadnezzar will do, as is Christ greater 
than Nebuchadnezzar is as a king, right? So now with those two kind of set, you come to the third step here where we are now. And that seems to return back to the first place again, to the theme of prophecy, ultimate destruction in the future, times of the end, and so on. Now we're looking perhaps at tribulation, but still in that future state. And if my pattern holds true, what would I expect to see coming next? We should go back to Nebuchadnezzar. We should go back to present day events. We should go back to a lesser of that greater. Sure enough, verse 10. Thus says the Lord God, I will also make the hordes of Egypt cease by the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He and his people with him, the most ruthless of the nations, will be brought in to destroy the land. And they will draw their swords against Egypt and fill the land with the slain. Moreover, I will make the Nile canals dry and sell the land into the hands of evil men. And I will make the land desolate and all that is in it by the hands of strangers. I, the Lord, have spoken. And thus says the Lord God, I will also destroy the idols and make the images cease from Memphis. There will no longer be a prince in the land of Egypt, and I will put fear in the land of Egypt. I will make Pathros desolate. I will set a fire in Zoan and execute judgments on Thebes. I will pour out my wrath on sin, the stronghold of Egypt. I will also cut off the hordes of Thebes. I will set a fire in Egypt. Sin will writhe in anguish. Thebes will be breached, and Memphis will have distresses daily. The young man of On and of Pi, Beseth, will fall by the sword, and the women will go into captivity, into Hephaneth. The day will be dark, and when I break there the yoke bars of Egypt, then the pride of her power will cease in her, a cloud will cover her, and her daughters will go forth into captivity. Thus I will execute judgments on Egypt, and they will know that I am the Lord. All right, so technically, we're still in the third message, but... Clearly, we've come back to the period of of Ezekiel's day. So the Lord says he's going to make the hordes of Egypt cease by the king of Babylon. Now, notice the word also, though. I think that's the key word in this for following the pattern, as simple as it sounds. Because he says in verse uh, 10, I will also make, and then he goes on to describe what Nebuchadnezzar will do. The word also there reflects that this is a separate judgment from the one that had just been discussed previously in the chapter. So that break at verse 10 tells you, In addition to what I just said is going to happen, I will also do this thing as a separate judgment. Not only separate in events, but separate in time. So in addition to bringing judgment against Egypt in tribulation, the Lord's also going to bring judgment against Egypt by Babylon. And this description is essentially another retelling of the way Babylon invaded Egypt after destroying Tyre. And we don't have to repeat all of that, right? He just mentions a few things that might catch your eye, like the canals drying up. That's an interesting aspect of uh, Egyptian... Uh, agriculture. They have man-made canals. They would, they would feed water, divert water from the Nile into fields where they could irrigate crops. But uh, those canals required constant maintenance. I mean, blowing sand and, and just the normal you know, water moving over them would, would erode them. And so men were constantly working to keep the canals running so that the fields stayed wet. And when men had to go to war, which is what happened when Babylon invaded, they stopped working the canals. And so the canals dried up. And as the canals dry up, the land goes to pot, and the land is taken over. It says here, God sold it to the Babylonians. History records that Egypt uh, had about 1,200 gods that they worshipped. They were truly the, the mother of idolatry for the ancient world. And the chief god was the sun, and Pharaoh was the incarnation of the sun god. And God said in verse 13 that their gods would be no more after Babylon's invasion. That is to say, the royal line of Pharaohs ended at the time of the Babylonian invasion. That's when the pharaohs came to an end in Egypt. So in verses 14 through 19, 
The Lord gives details on how this invasion would impact the land. The southern area of Pathros would be desolate rather than rich farmland. Zoan would be burned. That's modern Tanis. Uh, he would judge Thebes, which is modern Luxor today. Uh, verse 15, the Lord said he's going to judge sin. Now, in this case, that is not a reference to iniquity. That is the place name of sin. Uh, how would you like to say where do you, you know, where do you live? Sin? Sin, sin City was what we say. Sin was a, it's the northernmost stronghold of Egypt. You know, he mentions it, that it's a stronghold here. And Thebes is mentioned again and said to be breached. Memphis attacked daily, you know, so on. Uh, in verse 17, two more major cities fall. Women are taken captive. A dark day for that city, I can't pronounce, which was a fortress. That city, um, Tehaphanehes, that city was a fortress to uh, pharaohs. It was like the pharaoh's hometown. So you know that place was especially targeted uh, by Nebuchadnezzar. And in that day... Egypt's power is broken. A cloud settles over her. Her pride is broken. And the judgments show that God is God alone. And that's what the Egyptians come to know. Here again, you look at that prophecy and you notice the pattern. Kingdom judgment for Egypt followed by a lesser judgment brought by Nebuchadnezzar. Same thing twice now, right? And uh, that end times judgment is always uh, followed by a lesser judgment carried out by Nebuchadnezzar that mirrors it. That pattern suggests that there's something about Nebuchadnezzar's rule that suggests what's coming in the end. Do you see that? The fact that these keep getting juxtaposed in the text, it's not just for poetic license. It's suggesting to us that there's something about what God did in the earlier stages of this that he meant to picture or represent what would be coming in the later times as well. There's some connection there. And sure enough, that's the message you get from one or both of Ezekiel's contemporaries. Daniel and Jeremiah. In the visions that Daniel receives in his book, he tells us that a long period of human history, an age, God calls it, that God clearly spelled out and set forth, he marks the beginning and the end of it with two characters. You remember in Daniel 2 and in Daniel 7? The character that defines the start of this important age of human history is Nebuchadnezzar, and the character who will define its end is Christ the second coming of Christ. But right before Christ, another major character has a, has a role. We know him as the Antichrist. So Daniel tells us this. He says in, in Daniel 2.37, regarding how Nebuchadnezzar marks the beginning of this period, he says in Daniel 2.37, You, O king, speaking to Nebuchadnezzar, You, O king, are the king of kings to whom God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the strength, and the glory. And now listen to this. He says, And wherever the sons of men dwell or beasts of the field, or birds of the sky. God has given them into your hand and caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of uh, gold in the statue. All right? That sounds pretty comprehensive, doesn't it? Uh, There's another contemporary of Ezekiel, Jeremiah, who says the same thing, basically. This is what he says about Nebuchadnezzar. God speaking through Jeremiah, it says, I have made the earth, the men and the beasts which are on the face of the earth by my great power and my outstretched arm, and I give them to the one who is pleasing in my sight. Now I have given all these lands into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant. I have given him also the wild animals of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings will make him their servant. All right, so... Uh, what both of these men are selling us, and it's, it's clear enough, it's, it's not uh, ambiguous, Nebuchadnezzar didn't just rule the Western Asian area that we know so well. God gave him rule of the whole earth. He was literally king of the earth. No rulers since him 
has had this same degree of unchallenged world power. Not Hitler, not Napoleon, not Caesar. No one comes close. Now, I know he didn't get on a boat and go to North America or South America. That doesn't matter. What we're saying is, had he wanted to, he would have made it there. And in fact, he had the beast of the field at his beck, and he could have ridden on a, on a whale there if he wanted to. I mean, just he had no limits. God had said, I'm giving you the whole world, and this is what I'm going to do with you. Now, the Bible says that though nothing has come close to him since, the Bible says there is a future world leader coming who one day will equal Nebuchadnezzar's power, at least for a while. Daniel says this, 7.23, speaking about this future world leader as a beast, he says, the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on the earth which will be different from all other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth and tread it down and crush it. And speaking about the description of it, he says, as for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings arise and then another will arise after them and he will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. He will speak out against the Most High and wear down the saints of the Highest One, and he will intend to make alterations in times and in law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Now, there's a lot there we could talk about that we won't. Interest, if you're interested in that, please listen to the Daniel study. But meanwhile, there's just a few things here worth noting in my little pattern that we're talking about here. In, in the terminology of end times, the beast is a reference to a man who obtains power to rule the whole world by God's authority, just as Nebuchadnezzar did, for a short time. But shortly before that man gets to that point and gets to his pinnacle of power, before that happens, the Bible also says the world had already reached the point where there were only ten rulers of the whole world, ten kings. And then in the course of some series of events, those ten kings end up yielding their authority to the one so that he ends up owning it all. And in Revelation, you hear this concerning that same moment. Revelation seventeen twelve, The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have not yet received a kingdom, but they will receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. And they have one purpose. They give their power and authority to the beast. So it's a lot easier for one man to grab power over the whole world when you only have ten men that you have to worry about than it is when there's a hundred plus world leaders to contend with. So in the way God orchestrates these events, he brings the world down to just ten world leaders so that when the Antichrist comes, he only has ten to deal with so that he can get to be number one. The Antichrist rules the world for a short time. That's the reference to an hour. That's a euphemism. It's a way of saying for a short time before he has to see the end of his reign. And of course, what brings his reign to an end is the second coming of Christ. That's what Daniel tells us as well. So... At Christ's return, we learn tonight that at Christ's return, there will be a very specific set of judgments for Egypt in the midst of all of that calamity. So Ezekiel seems to be connecting these two sides of the events for us, just as Daniel did in his own way. That is, the near-term judgments against Egypt are carried out by God through the agency of an all-powerful world leader, Nebuchadnezzar. But the long-term prophecies against Israel are also carried out by God through the agency of the Antichrist, an all-powerful world leader. And then the ultimate judgments against Egypt that bring the whole thing to conclusion are carried out by God through the all-powerful leader, Christ, at his second coming. The pattern's the same in all cases. It just keeps growing in magnitude from one to the next. So each leader gets more powerful. The associated judgments on Egypt grow stronger and stronger. 
The ones under Nebuchadnezzar produced a degree of destruction. The judgments under tribulation by the Antichrist will create even greater calamity. And then, of course, Christ's second coming will produce ultimate destruction against Egypt, bringing them to their lowest point. What the Lord is showing his people through Ezekiel and Daniel and Jeremiah is the great extent that he is prepared to go to uh, over the course of thousands of years of human history to avenge Egypt's undermining of God's people. Some of that satisfaction would be coming in Ezekiel's day, but a lot of it awaits for the ultimate times of justice. And I want to finish the chapter with the fourth message because it, it hits home for us in a way that you might not see yet. It doesn't take very long, and it's worth finishing on this point. Notice in verse 20, this is the fourth message now, uh, closely tied to what we learned already. It says, In the eleventh year, in the first month, on the seventh of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, I have broken the arm of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And behold, it has not been bound up for healing or wrapped with a bandage that it may be strong to hold the sword. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and will break his arms, both the strong and the broken, and I will make the sword fall from his hand. I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them among the lands. For I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon and put my sword in his hand, and I will break the arms of Pharaoh so that he will groan before him with the groanings of a wounded man. Thus I will strengthen the arms of the king of Babylon and put the arms of Pharaoh, but the arms of Pharaoh will fail. Then they will know that I am the Lord, when I put my sword into the hand of the king of Babylon and it stretches out against the land of Egypt, when I scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them among the lands, then they will know that I am the Lord. All right, this is the fourth message by count. But according to the date, this is the second one he received. All right, so the date here is April 29th, 587 B.C. It's just about four months after the first one he got about Egypt. And in this one, he's talking about Pharaoh having a broken arm. Now, at first, it seems very easy to assume that's just metaphor. And he uses it metaphorically. But it's also possible that it's both. That he's talking literally about Pharaoh having a broken arm, and then uses it metaphorically to talk about how he's going to break the nation as well. And that would fit because of some history. During the time Nebuchadnezzar had Jerusalem under siege, the Egyptians attacked, as I've said. And they succeeded in pushing Babylon back for only about four months. Those months on the calendar coincide with the four months between Ezekiel's first and second prophecy dates. So if we're getting it accurate, then it would mean that the Lord is telling us what happened to the king of Egypt in the midst of that battle when he went to try to stop the siege against Jerusalem. Somehow he broke his arm in the battle. And as a result, he couldn't hold a sword anymore. In verse 21, it says... So what the Lord is now doing is he's using the condition of Pharaoh and his broken arm to personify what God himself is going to do to the whole nation in breaking them, so to speak. Uh, At the time of this prophecy, Babylon had not yet defeated Tyre, much less traveled down to defeat Egypt. Remember, this one came number two in the list. This is only four months after the first one. So this prophecy is speaking about the coming destruction of uh, Egypt at the hands of the Babylonian army some decade and a half before it happened. Okay? This is why I said this is confusing because we jump a little. So this message ends with the Lord promising that what happened... Now, now this is where it applies to us a little bit. I hope you can get your mind kind of wrapped around this for a second. This is 15 or more years before anyone thinks Egypt's going to go away. They're currently contending with the other world power. And yeah, they're losing the battles. But that's because God's on Babylon's side. But from a human point of view, these two look equally powerful. And historically, I mean, Egypt, Egypt is a superpower. Uh, this is a nation who uh, had been 
in a position of world power for over 2,000 years at this point. They had been building pyramids thousands of years before Babylon even came on the map in a major way. All right? this, is, this is no lightweight nation. They have a huge history of power. And now what God is saying through the metaphor of a broken arm is he's saying, Egypt is no longer going to be a world power. I'm taking them off the superpower stage right here, right now. Fifteen years later, he did it. That was it. No more pharaohs. Done. Uh, as you contemplate that, that process I just described, think about what that says about God's power to move nations. It's important to remember that Egypt's fate when you hear Daniel and Revelation telling us that we have to get to the point of a ten-king world government. And when you hear that prophecy, and perhaps you think to yourself, well, that can't be any time real soon, because who could defeat the United States? Or China? Or any other world power, right? Well, ask Egypt. Ask Egypt how quickly God can bring a world power down to nothing. I'm not advocating. I mean, I don't know. There's no patriotic side to this conversation. My, my uh, country is not of this earth. My country is in heaven. Uh, so that being said, uh, I, I would prefer my world not be rocked by political um, turmoil because it doesn't make life easier. But in the meantime, I know it's coming because the Bible said it's coming. And the, the precedent we have that's most clearly an example to us would be Egypt going from 60 to zero and nothing flat. They, they completely were, were knocked off the stage. And ever since then, they've been a minor player up and down in time. And in a future day, they'll be such a minor player that they'll be uh, less powerful than the smallest nation on earth today. So uh, we always have to be mindful of who's really running the show. All right, let's pray. We have about 25 minutes for Q&A for any who'd like to be a part of it. Dear Father, we do thank you for the nation we live in, for it does offer us so many blessings. We also thank you, Father, that it's not our country, that you've saved us to something better, given us a passport to much greater things to come, and left us here as an ambassador. So if we love this place and the people who are in it, Father, let us love them in the best possible way by teaching and preaching them about a country to come and helping move hearts to know Christ. Thank you, Father, that that is our ultimate satisfaction, our ultimate salvation, and the thing, Father, that we have uh, been given by no means except by your grace. We thank you for that. Bring us back in weeks to come, Father. Help us to get ready to study the kingdom part of this book that we so long to know more about. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.